Be seated, and uh, this morning, the title of my message is Breaking the Chains of Indifference. Breaking the Chains of Indifference. Last week, we went through Joshua chapter 7 and talked about some principles of, of what we need to look for as we as God's people move forward. And what I want to do is really talk today strongly and begin the, and for the next several weeks talking about prayer, about us being where we need to be with God. What does that look like for us to be who we are supposed to be? There was a, um, a man who died recently. I don't know if you've ever read anything of Elie Wiesel. Elie Wiesel was a man who was in the, um, uh, he, was, he was thrown into the concentration camps in World War II. He was, he was Jewish, um, and he, he basically, he and his, his dad, his, his mom, his sister were all thrown in the, in the camp. He died recently. And Elie Wiesel, after he got out, he became a champion for fighting what he called indifference. And here's one thing he said. He said, indifference is the sign of sickness, a sickness of the soul more contagious than any other. The opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. The opposite of faith is not heresy, it's indifference. And the opposite of life, it's not death, it's indifference. It's when we get to the place that we seemingly don't care. Or we may say we care, but our actions say something completely different. And one of the greatest ways to break the chains of indifference is to understand what it means to pray, to get connected to God. I've said this over and over again, and I will continue to say this to you as, as a church. My job and my passion as your interim pastor is to get you to a place that, 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 that literally when the, your new pastor shows up, he has to sprint to catch up with you. Because we spiritually are so broken and so desperate and so much want to see God move, we can't help it. Leonard Ravenhill once said, if you go ahead and bring it up on the screen, Leonard Ravenhill once said, he said, you never have to advertise a fire. Everyone comes running when there's a fire. Likewise, if your church is on fire, you'll not have to advertise it. The community will already know it. Let that sink in for a moment. What kind of fire is he talking about? He's not talking about a match with gas. He's talking about spiritual fire that burns within our very being. Here's another statement Vance, um, uh, that Samuel Zwimmer said. He said, the history of missions is the history of answered prayer. From Pentecost to the Haystack meeting in New England, from the days when Robert Morrison landed in China, and you can look up these names later if you want to, to the martyrdom of John and Betty Stam, prayer has been the source of power and the secret of spiritual triumph. But here's the problem. Vance Havner once said this. He said, the tragedy of today is that the situation is desperate, but the saints are not. Let that sink in. How desperate are we to see God move? How desperate? I'm going to read a statement here in a little while from Jim Simbo from the book Storm. He talks about that, that he says what we have done is we have given ourselves up to formulas to structures, as if the church runs based upon, you know, votes and things like that. There is no vote about the holiness of God. There is no vote about the righteousness of God. 
God's church does not run based upon structure, even though we should never have confusion. God's church runs upon the power of the Holy Spirit within us, released among a community of God's people who are willing to live for him no matter what. That's what this is all about. It's never been about us. It never has been and never will be. I want to compare two two, uh, verses today, two different settings. First, go to James chapter 5. If you will, look at verse 16, 17, and 18. You'll see there. Then we're going to, if you want to put your finger in 1 Kings 18, we'll go there here in a few minutes as well too. But, but uh, James 5, 16 simply says this. It's a, it's a verse y'all have heard a thousand times. It says, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Look at that. Look at me. The effective, fervent prayer of who? Of who? Who does it say? A who? Turn to your neighbor and say, a righteous man. Turn to him and say that. Come on. A righteous man. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man. That our hearts would be right. That our relationships would be right. That we would not carry anything in us that is not of Christ. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And then he gives the example of this. Verse 17, he says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. In other words, Elijah may sound like this otherworldly person in Scripture as a prophet, but he was really a person just like us. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Now I want you to notice what the key to this is. I want every one of you to hear this, okay? I want you to hear this, understand this. Here's what it says. He says, he says the effective, fervent prayer. The idea of continual. The Bible says that we pray, pray without ceasing, that we continue in prayer every moment. It is not that we are on our knees. It is that we are constantly realized that we're in the presence of God. So every decision, everything we do, every thought that comes to our mind is filtered through Christ because we are in the spirit of prayer of everything we do. And the phrase there when it says that, that Elijah prayed earnestly. Now, I know this is going to confuse you. It confuses me. But here's what that phrase literally means in the Greek, okay? Here's what it means. It means, as Elijah prayed, he prayed. Now, you're going to see here in a few minutes that when Elijah went on the other side of the mountain, after God brought the fire down on Mount Carmel, that he put his head between his knees because he realized he was so unworthy. God had to humble him. And so what it literally means is that Elijah was so undistracted by the world and everything else that all he could see was God. All he could see was his purpose. All he could see was what God wanted to do with his people. That's all he could see. So as he prayed, he was wrapped so tight in that prayer that as he prayed, His spirit cried out to God. If you were to know what the New Testament means when it says we pray, sometimes the spirit interprets in ways so deep you can't even know what it is, but he knows what it is. That's what he's talking about. Many of us never get past just the verbal saying of a prayer to understanding what it means that when our soul cries out for God. That's where Elijah was. Look at me, church. 
You want to know why we are dying in America and the churches are being closed at an alarming rate and pastors are running for ministry like crazy? It's because we have stopped praying as we pray. We're so distracted by everything else. And Elijah just wanted one thing, for God to be glorified among the nations. One thing, for the nation to come back to the one true God. And so as he prayed, he was wrapped tight in that thing. There was no echo there of him hearing himself. He was so wrapped up in God, it was as if God was sitting across from him. And it was as if he was pouring that back to God as God poured back to him. That's the intimacy of prayer. That's how we break the chains of indifference. We stop practicing religion and we dive so deep in God that all we can see is Him. All we can hear is the thunder of the fire of God coming down. And all we know is how He burns inside of us. If you don't believe me, look at 1 Kings chapter 18. Beginning in verse 17 and 20 through 24. You know what happened, don't you? That Ahab and Jezebel had turned away from God completely. And so had the Israelites. They had turned away. And they were leading the land in the wrong direction. And so Elijah told them, he said, listen. He said, you're going to have a famine on the land for three years. You have a famine on the land. And there's nothing. Now I want you to get this picture. When he walks back into the picture... And, and, and Ahab recognizes him. He says, oh, there's that troublemaker. He says, no, I'm not the troublemaker. You chose to do this. You chose to do this. Guys, listen to me carefully. My, my, I had a nephew, my nephew called me yesterday. God's doing some stuff in his heart. But he has been a mess now for the last 15 years. He called me yesterday asking, why is God allowing all this stuff to happen in his life? And I told him, I said, Jake, listen to me. It's because God is purifying all of the junk that you've done. There's consequences to the sin that you have done. But if you will wait, God will purify your heart. He will do that. There are consequences to what we do as a nation and we don't do as a church. And Elijah said there will be a famine in the land. And there's a famine across North America. There's a famine across our world in many places. There's a famine in the church. And so what happens is, uh, is Ahab comes back, and the moment Ahab saw Elijah, he said, so it's you, old troublemaker. Verse 17, it's not I who caused this trouble to Israel, Elijah said, but you and your government, you dumped God's ways and commands and run off after the local gods, the Baals. Here's what I want to do. Assemble everyone in Israel at Mount Carmel and make sure that the special pets of Jezebel the 450 prophets of the local gods, the Baals, and the 400 prophets of the, of the goddess Asherah are there. So Ahab summoned everyone in Israel, particularly the prophets of, of Mount Car- to Mount Carmel. Elijah challenged the people. How long are you going to sit on the fence? Listen to me. Listen to me, church. How long are we content to sit on the fence of indifference? If, if God is the real God... Follow him. If it's Baal, if it's this world, if it's somebody you see on TV, whatever, then follow them. But make up our minds. Listen to this. Look what it says. And no one said a word. 
the very beginning of passive aggressiveness. No one would say anything. Why? Because nobody made a move. Then Elijah said, I am the only prophet of God left in Israel. And there are 450 prophets of Baal. Let the Baal prophets bring up two oxen. Let them pick one, butcher it, and lay it out on the altar on the firewood. But don't ignite it. I'll take that ox, cut it up, and lay it on the wood. But neither will I light the fire. Then you pray to your gods, and I'll pray to God. The God who answers with fire will prove to be, in fact, all, uh, in fact, God, all the people agreed, a good plan, let's do it. So get the picture. He says, you want to find out who the real God is? Because you're all wanting to follow all these gods, these prophets of Baal and Asherah, these sex gods that they would go to temples and have sex with prostitutes and all this kind of stuff, as if that somehow honored God, laying herself down, you know, at these altars of places that there shouldn't be, worshiping things. Guys, we can worship in the church. We can worship the structure of the church over the one who is the church. And guys, understand that. He's so, here's what he did. He said, he said, here's what I want you to do. He said, I want you to pull together all the prophets of Baal and Asherah. There were about 900 prophets of Baal and Asherah. I want you to pull them to Mount Carmel right there. He says, there's one man against 900. He says, and they're going to lay down an altar, and they're going to go first. And they prayed over that altar that God would bring fire. And if you've read that before, you know that's the first place in Scripture we see trash talking. Because, you know, Elijah begins to say, when it gets near the time, he says, wait a minute. Is your God asleep? Is your God asleep? Is your God, what's wrong? Where's your God at? And so the Bible says that the prophets of Baal and Asher started cutting themselves and dancing and sweating more and doing all and rolling around the ground, trying to conjure up their God. And finally, Elijah stepped up and said, enough. He cleaned out the area, took 12 stones, representing the 12 tribes of Israel, built an altar there, dug a trench around the altar. Then he had them pour water on top of the offering. Why would you do that if you're expecting fire to come? It was a sign of purifying the offering and the area. And then he simply prayed, God, would you please bring your fire down? He was not, Elijah wasn't the fire, God was. Show the nation who you really are. And all of a sudden, whoom! All that was left was a big hole in the ground. It just sucked up the offering and the water and everything around it. And immediately, the people knew who the true God was. So what did Elijah do? The Bible says that they, 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 they destroyed the prophets of Baal and Asherah. They purified the land. And then let, let me show you what Elijah did. If you look to verse 41, it says, Then Elijah said to Ahab, Go up and eat and drink, for there was a sound of abundance of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink. So how did, how did Elijah respond? Elijah went up to the top of Carmel. He bowed down on the ground, put his face between his knees. He said to his servant, go up now, look towards the sea. So, so he went up and he looked and he said, there is nothing. And seven times he said, go again. Then it came to pass on the seventh time that he said, there is a cloud as small as a man's hand rising out of the sea. So he said, go up. And say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Now it happened in the meantime that the sky became black and the clouds and the wind. And there was a heavy rain. So Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. Then the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah. And he girded up his loins and ran ahead of Ahab. 
to, to the entrance of Jezreel. So how, what can we learn from Elijah? I want to give you several things we can learn, five things today. Number one, Elijah understood that prayer and intimacy with God are essential. He understood that prayer and intimacy with God are essential. Guys, we don't need more religion. We don't need more manuals on how to fix what's happening in the church. We just need to be the church and realize that prayer and intimacy with God, God will follow the intimacy of his people if we desire him. Listen to me, God will not run away from people that are broken and hurting and weak and willing to admit that they have nothing and, they, and the only thing they can have is through him and they're willing to lay themselves out there. Look at me, the problem with us as churches is that we have become so prideful in everything we do and we are not broken any longer. I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen in church after church. My mom and dad helped plant a church outside of Nashville, Tennessee. I was so proud of them. My dad was in his 60s. My mom was in her late 50s. And my mom and dad felt called to be on this, this, this church planting team. My dad was a businessman. And they, they show up, and, and they're meeting in a school, and they're baptizing people like crazy. They're running 150-plus in this little community out in the middle of nowhere. They finally find 10 acres of land. They, they build this building out there, and the church is still growing. And the first day they walk into the building, they look at each other and pat each other on the back and say, wow, look what we did. A year later, they had 50 people left. A year after that, they had 35. Because when God's people are not broken, and God's people are not on their faces, prayer and intimacy with God are essential. Essential. Number two, look what it says. It says, Elijah understood that we are not essential. We need a revival of humility. Now, what, how do I know that? Well, let me show you a couple things here. Let me show that real quick, okay? Come up here, man. Come up here. Hey, come here, man. Come here, real quick. Come here. Come here. Come here. Uh, come on. Come over here real quick. Come here, just real quick. Just, I'm not going to pick on you, I promise you. Yeah, just come up real quick here. I want you all to sit down on the stage right here. Okay? I'm not going to. It's okay. It's okay. I'll buy you lunch. <laughs> Here's what I want you guys to do. I want you to try to put your head down between your knees as far as you can get, as far as you can go. Just stay there for a moment while I, I preach the rest of the sermon, okay? <laughs> Let me ask you something. Is that comfortable, guys? Is that comfortable? Is that comfortable? Uh, am, am I going to have to hire a chiropractor and bring a massage therapist here at church? Is that what's going to happen? Y'all go ahead and sit up. Is that comfortable? Let me ask you a question. Why do you think Elijah put his head down between his knees? I mean, come on. It was one man against 900 prophets of Baal and Asherah. He had just seen this happened. He didn't call Fox News. He didn't start doing interviews. He didn't look for a, a book, 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 to, you know, th anything, nothing like that. What did he do? He simply found a place to pray. But look at the way he prayed. It, it speaks to us. Why do you think he put his head down between his knees? Think about, think about this. I mean, come on, that's not a comfortable place to be. I'll do it with you. And it's, it's hard. Oh, would you rub my back right there? <laughs> It's, 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 I get his neck right here. Y'all can go back to your feet, seats, guys, if you want to. That's all right. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. It's not comfortable. It's not easy, is it? It's not. It's not easy. So why did Elijah do that? Why did he do that? Look at me. Come on. Why did he do that? He did that as a picture, guys, of brokenness. 
that, I mean, he had just seen God bring fire from heaven and consume the offering, and a whole nation was challenged and changed. And so what did he do? His response was, this is not me. I didn't bring the fire. I am not the fire. He's the fire. He put his head down between his knees as if to say to God, God, I am not worthy. Bring up the next one. See, he understood God's nature. He understood God's nature. What's God's nature? God's nature is that he pursues us. In prayer, he pursues us. He wants to know us. Come on. I want you to see the picture of what was happening here on the mountain, okay? I want you to see what was happening here. Is that Elijah kept sending his, you know, his, his young man back over and over again. Come on, it's like this. Here's Elijah over here praying, his head down between his knees, and then he sends him back, and this guy goes one time, two times, three times, four times, five times. You know, it's finally that, that last time. He comes over and he says, Elijah, there's no, nothing out there. And he says, go back again. What does the Bible say? The Bible says to seek God, right? To knock. You know what the phrase there literally means in the Greek? It means to continue to knock, to continue to seek, to never stop knocking, to never stop seeking, to never stop going after God. Because he pursues us. He wants relationship, intimacy with us. It's not a formula. It's different than that. So what ends up happening? Look at number four. He understood, Elijah understood God's ways. So that final time, what did he do? He sent him back. This guy runs over here and he goes, ah, 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 he's looking around and he doesn't see. And all he says, wait a minute, there's, there's a cloud. And he looks at me and goes, it's, it's, it's about the size. Of, oh, man, he's going to send me back. He runs back to him again and says, Elijah, there's nothing there but a, a cloud about the size of a man's hand. Man, I'm sorry. You know, that's it. And Elijah jumps up and says, you go tell him. Tell Ahab, he better get down because the rain is about to fall. He saw a cloud the size of a man's hand. Do we have a God who could flood the earth with a cloud the size of a man's hand? Yes or no? We do, don't we? Guys, we're looking for the big display and the big picture, you know, and, and, and the big production. And God is saying, look for my hand. Listen to my voice. What we need is a touch of God. We need his hand to rest upon us, upon his church. We need to be drawn to our faces in, in repentance for, for anything in our life that is not of him, for our attitudes in our heart, for what we say and do. Guys, we need to seek the hand of God. We need to. God's done a great thing in this church over the last few years. Jeff did a marvelous job, and God moved in this church, this community. But if you're not careful, it's easy to sit back and go, wow, look what we did. Let me tell you something. We did nothing. God did it all. Or it will never last. And I believe God's hand is still here. God's spirit is flowing among his people and God wants to do even more amazing things if we will simply just trust him. 
get on our faces and pray. I want you to bring up the last one. See, Elijah was willing to act on his understanding. What did he do? Elijah got up when the sky was only one cloud, and he began to run, and as he ran, the skies began to darken. I want you to notice what happens. We think prayer is, God, you show me, and I'll move. No, no. I mean, faith is, you show me, and I'll move. No, faith is, God, I move, trusting you, and you will show me. Big difference. So he got him started running, and the sky began to get dark. Think about how worn out he was. How many of you guys are worn out? Come on, raise up your hands. You're worn out. You had a rough week. It's been tired. Let me just tell you something. There is, there's hope in the presence of God. We should never be spiritually weary. We should never be that way. He got up and he ran. He was sweaty. He was nasty. His head be between his knees for we don't know how long. He was worn out. He was hurting. It was hot. The ground was cracked. It hadn't had rain in three and a half years. There were carcasses of dead animals everywhere. There had to have been. It was nasty. And he gets up because of one cloud the size of a man's hand. And he acts on his faith and he trusts and he runs towards the very place he's supposed to be. Because he had just seen God's power come down. And as he started to run, the rain began to fall. Gosh, we need the rain, don't we? We need the rain of His Spirit to fall upon us. The power of God to fall upon us. We need that. But the problem is, are we desperate enough for it? Are we desperate enough for it? Bring up the next one. We'll come back to that in a minute. Here's the bottom line. Let me read it. Go ahead and bring it up. Indifference to God through prayerlessness kills our capacity for impacting the lives of unsaved friends, etc. Regardless of our religious affiliations and our involvement in good things, the church is called to first care and then to multiply by personally giving up our lives to serve others. Anything short of this is not biblical and places us in a position of choosing willful disobedience over God's ultimate design and desire for His body, the church. We are never to be indifferent. There is no such word, whatever, that we're supposed to use. Oh, whatever, whatever. No, no, no. Bring up the final one. I was reading Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire a few years ago. This is Jim Simbola's first book, and he was talking about how the church went from 30 to thousands and how God moved and it all started this Tuesday night prayer session. He was in a boat down in Florida. He was sick one day and he said that uh, as he was sick, he saw, he was looking out over the water and he felt the presence of, of God just speaking to him and he said, I'm nothing. Here's I'm pastoring this little church that's struggling with nothing. He was working an extra job. He was about almost broke in his wife both. His wife is not overseeing one of the greatest choirs in the world at that time. He said, but I had a passion for Brooklyn, for that area. He said, I knew that I wanted to see God move. And then he said this. He said, I discovered an astonishing truth at that moment. God is attracted to weakness. That's hard for us men, isn't it? Look at me, I'm... Come on, we do that when we're little kids, don't we? We get to each other, and who's got the biggest arm, and who can push each other down or kick each other. We'll we figure out all ways to kind of overpower. It's, but God's attracted to weakness, meaning, meaning that we, we can't do it without him. He can't resist those who humbly 
honestly admit how desperately they need him. Let me ask you, church, are you desperate? Or are you content? Chapter 3 of the book that Simba wrote is called The Storm. I want to read a part of this. He said, one Tuesday, every Tuesday they had a prayer time. While kneeling in my usual spot during our noon prayer meeting, I heard a woman's voice to my left. Her head was in her hands. She was praying softly, but something about the way she prayed caught my attention. She was talking to God as if he stood five feet away. You know, Lord, I'm going to lose that, that boy to this world. She prayed through tears. She started quietly at first, but as her pleading grew stronger. When's the last time we pled with God to say, do we plead him with God to do it? He says, stronger, her voice became louder. I'm going to lose him to the gangs unless you come and help me. I can't do it myself. I could hear the desperation in her prayer. She cried out to God with all the urgency of a broken, of a heartbroken mom. You've got to do something, God. You've got to do something now. I could hear everything she said. You know his father is dead and gone, she reasoned. There was a pause, and although I couldn't see her face, I could hear her weeping, all alone trying to raise him, she said. And you know all the voices that, that are calling to him. God, you have to help me. Her tone was so bold, sincere, and heartfelt, and intimate. If you don't help me, no one can. That's what it means to be weak. She prayed before her words dissolved into sobs. Her prayer moved me deeply. I reached over and put my hand on her heaving shoulders and joined her in intercession for her son. Someone said that the most awesome thing in the world is when a mere human being prays to a creator of the universe and is heard. I felt that awe and I listened to this, this woman in equal parts confidence and desperation lift her heart to God and pour out her soul. It was like watching one of the psalmists crying out for help. When someone prays boldly and desperately like this, an old church catchphrase describes it. It's storming heaven. I've heard lots of prayers like hers in my church, and they've always moved me. How much, how much more must they move our Father in heaven who loves us dearly? Desperate and soul-searching prayers like hers result in answers. When God is sought in desperation, he responds even in hopeless situations. Wow. He ends with one thing. He simply says, I think many Christians come, have come to a place where either they have a breakthrough moment that brings a new chapter in their lives or they slowly, slowly acquiesce and accept the status quo. I also feel many churches either pray down to heaven's blessings or gradually turn to shallow formulaic methods instead of living, living for God. But we shouldn't give up or look for shortcuts. We should be like Paul who writes in Galatians 4.19, I travail like a mother giving birth until Christ is formed in you. The apostle certainly didn't accept the what is. Rather, he fought for the what could be. That's what we are supposed to be, too. What would, what would happen if God got a hold of our schools by one young person who says, I'm going to pray against 900 students who say it won't work, but let God's prayer Bring the brokenness to one that spreads to the many. What if, what if we decide we want to reach this community? I'm not talking about 
now lay me down to sleep prayers. I'm talking about the kind of prayer that we lay before God and we weep in desperation. As he said, as travail, as a mother is birthing a child. That's the kind of prayer we need. That's the kind of prayer Elijah brought to Mount Carmel. That's the kind of prayer Jesus prayed the night before he was crucified. That's the kind of prayer he asked from us to pray as we pray and let the power of God fall. Guys, I don't drive down here on Sunday mornings an hour and a half or so. For my health, I drive down here because I believe God has got a match and he's ready to light the fire. But we have to be willing to say, yes, Lord. Yes. It's not about any of us. It's not about our opinions. It's not about our preferences. It's not about our desires. It's about surrendering to God. Come on, guys. We live in a desperate time in a desperate nation. And the church is desperate. We need help. We can't get it with more buildings. Better air conditioning or more songs. The only way we can get what we need is when God's people are so broken and ready that they're willing to lay face down and say, God, I'm, I'm done with this. Fill me. Make me what you want me to be. Desperate for God. Can you close your eyes with me, please? We get ready for our invitation. This morning, maybe you've never received Christ, your personal Savior. Maybe. Maybe it's just that, that you can continue to put that off. But this morning, God is saying, it's time. It's past time. Way past time. So if you've never received Christ, your personal Savior, this morning, I want to call you out. I want to ask you to come this morning and simply surrender your life to Christ, just as that young girl did last week. To let this be a beginning point, a day of your new birth. Maybe you want to join the church, maybe, or maybe God's just doing in you what he's been doing in me the last two or three months. Maybe God is speaking through the depth of your soul and he's saying, it's time that we get serious about this. It's time that we are broken. It's time that we surrender. It's time that we become desperate for God and we seek his face because that's what he wants. I really think the key is how desperate are we? I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer that I'm going to ask you to come this morning. If you need someone to pray with, I'll be here with you. But I'm going to ask you from all of this building to come and kneel together. Take a moment and pray in desperation for your home, for your family, for our church, for our community, for us, that he would move. Father, in Jesus' name, I ask you right now, Father, that you would touch each person here. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit 
like a fire would begin to burn in our souls. I love that statement that, that people, they'll come find the fire if we're the ones on fire. Let our hearts burn for you. Let our souls surrender to you. Let our lives, our egos, our, our pride, our whatever, God, our conscience, our whatever it may be, God, that is in us that is just not where it needs to be. Heal us, God. Heal us from the inside out and let us learn to pray as we pray. Lord, I know some of us don't even know what to say, but you say that you will interpret it in groaning so deep that we can't even understand, but you know what we're trying to say because you know the depth of our soul and you know if we're really broken. You know if we're really repentant. You know if we're really serious and if we're humbled. Oh God, bring us to our faces this morning. Take this church, God, and may you be exalted through it. May your light so shine through us that darkness is obliterated all over this community, our families and our homes. We ask you to move right now, Father, not because we deserve it, but because we wait with anticipation for you to bring the fire down. We believe, God, that you can bring blessing with a cloud the size of a man's hand. We know you're a powerful God. We know we, just, we, we are desperate for you. Please, Father, pour your spirit out upon us now, God, that we may be renewed in your image. In Jesus' name we pray.